This is Girl on the River, the podcast. Whole crew, come forward to row. Hello and welcome back to Girl on the River, the podcast for the start of season three. Having taken longer away than expected from the podcast this summer, it's really great to be back and I have a fantastic set of guests lined up for you this season. Now, before I get started, I just wanted to remind you of a few things. First of all, you can find me on social media at, at Girl on the River on all channels. I try to reply to all messages and mentions, so please do find me on there and have a chat. Secondly, I'm hoping to resume my Zoom Ergo sessions soon after a break for the summer. I've got quite a lot on my plate at the moment, but I'm still hoping to get back to it as soon as I can, so look out for that. I'm doing a circuit training qualification with Future Fit Training this weekend. I'm now a brand ambassador for them, so you may find that I'll be mixing in some bits and pieces off the erg as well as on it. And finally, if you would like early access to episodes, bits of bonus content, sneak previews of news and occasional merch, head over to patreon.com forward slash girl on the river and join my other patrons there who are already enjoying these benefits. There's a link in the show notes wherever you get your podcast as well. So enough of all that. Let's get on with the show. My guest today Kate Lindgren came to rowing later in life, but has taken to it with so much infectious enthusiasm, it's impossible not to get fired up listening to her. She is regularly to be found paddling up and down the river in Peterborough in a single skull, which she says gives her, like most of us, an incredible sense of freedom. So far, so normal, except that Kate is also blind. Kate, welcome to the podcast. And thank you so much for having me. It's uh, quite a shock, really. <laughs> well, it shouldn't be a shock because, well, for a start, I've had I've had Judith Packer on, on to me for a while saying, you've got to have Kate on the podcast. And I, I knew she was absolutely right. But we've just got lots to talk about and lots in common. Uh, we are uh, yes. the same age. We are both, <laughs> we are. both late onset rowers. Me more so than you. Yes, yes, this is true. But there is there is one significant difference between us, which is that you are blind. So we probably ought to start with that. So what we have never talked about in all the years we've chatted over Twitter, we have never talked about when and how you lost your sight. So shall we start with that? Oh. I'll try and keep it brief, shall I? Well, you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do. It's just like, ah, I'm 54 now. It's 36 years ago since it started. There's a lot in there. My sight started to deteriorate when I was 17, just quite strangely. I mean, at the time, my mum had had cataract often, so she was going through all of that. My middle brother, who's five and a half years older than me, about 18 months previously, had started to have sight issues. So it was all... A, surrounding around his losing you know or what was going on with his sight mm -hmm. I was going along to appointments for I don't know just so they could investigate um because this all came out of the blue uh because although it's a hereditary condition it had skipped a couple of generations mm -hmm. so we didn't know anybody there were no other cousins aunts uncles that we knew of with the condition 
So had it always been on your radar as something that might no. happen to you? No, no okay. No, 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 complete and utter shock. And for me, because I'm a female, it was always considered that I was only a carrier of the condition. Oh, I see. So it took a good, it took until my early 20s for them to recognise that I did have the condition, uh, even though I knew there was something going on mm-hmm. a bit weird with my sight, because um, I could see dots in places and uh, and there were bits that were sort of not there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so what, what's the name of the condition? Okay, its long name is retinitis pigmentosa, shortened to RP, mm-hmm. which covers it's rare, but it covers quite the, the, the whole term. RP covers many varied sort of like variations of the condition. Mm-hmm. And as I say, I have a typical RP. So mine's not even doesn't even sort of like affect me like it did my brother. Mm-hmm. So usually it means that the sight from the sides of your eyes deteriorates first and you end up with tunneled vision. Mine started to go in the middle around my um, optic nerve Mm -hmm. and I still have some light perception for me it meant that I see snow that's what I see constantly snow Uh and I I just chewed it out I certainly knew there was something severely wrong when I was driving my mini home from work I think I was about 17 and a half or so it was winter anyway driving home from work in my mini and I was going down an off ramp and the car in front, I thought, blooming heck, he's only got one brake light. Moved my vision slightly to the right. And I thought, oh, God, no. Oh, there, there's the left brake light. Oh, now I can't see the right brake light. So I could only see there was, there was something missing. Right. It made driving quite hairy scary. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. So did it take quite a long time to get a proper diagnosis in that case? I think it was when I was about 22 or 23 because I could still see the thing is I could still read the mm-hmm. charts to drive a car Gosh. but I just knew that I I know I just knew that I wasn't safe to do so anymore and in fact I moved into this house 32 years ago today oh wow so it, so it is actually 32 years ago that I stopped driving because I made the decision when we move because it's very difficult to say to people one day oh I can drive today mm. or I can't drive tomorrow and I, I do feel very much for people who are older who still think they can drive mm. and find it hard to give up yeah so, so yeah so it was around about you know around about the time of 22 23 that finally somebody did sort of like say yes you do have RP and did it develop beyond that? Or was that the limit of, of the deterioration at that point? No, no, it's, 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 it's just basically since the age of 17, it just has slowly deteriorated. Mm-hmm. So I can remember every six months I would probably do something. So I would go, oh, can I still see that? Mm-hmm. And I remember once it was, could I read baked beans on a Heinz can of baked beans? Because I believe that it's it's quite large font. Um, And I could see the B and the D, but I would then struggle to make out the bit in the middle. Yeah. (laughs) Or I could see the big O, orange O on the orange juice carton. Mm -hmm. And then obviously then sort of like as time goes by, you go, oh, I can't see that anymore. So you you, you just don't bother. How did you 
cope emotionally with with the deterioration obviously there was a there was a long period during which you were sort of coming to terms with with what was going on how how were you managing at that point I think I I, I had so much going on else that I had to, you know I had my first child age 23 mm-hmm. so just after I'd moved into this house I I tried to go back to work after having my first child and within the space of about three months I had three jobs I mean some of them only lasted like 24 hours because I realized that no I couldn't see that computer screen no I couldn't see the bank numbers on that check card so I couldn't even work in a shop as a part-time you know with a with a young baby yeah um and finally I I did a job that lasted three months but I couldn't see in the dark. So walking to get the bus was quite, you know, I just followed people in front of me. Yeah. And then I ended up actually at the doctor's with what he termed nervous asthma because I couldn't stop coughing. Mm-hmm. And he just said, do you know something? For what you're paying out on childcare, you could just stay at home and be with your baby and just look after, you know, your, yourself and, mm-hmm. your, you know, your sight and stuff and things like that and that was when I actually was registered partially sighted mm-hmm. so I wasn't even registered partially sighted before that and then I can remember going into Woolworths and trying to fumble around for money as I was trying to cope and just being so stupid because you know the girls behind the counter I, I felt they were being impatient and eventually I actually went back to college because I didn't do A-levels mm-hmm. so I, I went back to college did an access course and went on actually to do a degree um, I didn't care what the degree was. It was just to prove to myself that I could do something. What What was it in? <laughs> it was combined studies, cultural studies. It just came about that it was on offer in Peterborough. So mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't have to travel. I could walk to college and back. It was a franchise degree. And at the end of that, the first year of that degree, I had my second child. So I was doing all the family stuff and everything. So, no, I didn't really have time to, don't get me wrong. It, it, you know, I do did have my sad moments and, you know, I'd always sometimes sit and cry. But I've now limited myself to one day a year. If I want to do that, I'm allowed one day a year to to, to just be sad if I want to. Yeah. And I'll allow I'll allow myself that one day. <laughs> well, actually, it probably is actually only a couple of hours. but <laughs> And it could be something really silly that triggers it off, just something that's really frustrated me. And I think, well, if I wasn't blind, then you know, I could just get on and do that mm. because I, I am a bit of a doer. So, yeah, that's me. And you were talking about how the various jobs were kind of impossible to to continue with. So how, what, where are we as a society in kind of accommodating people who have visual impairments? I know this might sound bad to a lot of people, but the thought of actually going into paid employment after all of those bad experiences totally it just makes me it raises my blood pressure and my anxiety yeah really so much and I know a lot of other blind people who have felt the same so I don't I know I'm not alone I think technology um has come on a long way but then you've obviously got to be okay with doing it I think from reading things on Facebook posts and things for some, you've got to be very determined. Mm. You've got to be very determined to, to 
work and be blind I think yeah um, but that's only my opinion and in terms of sort of going out and about, how, how is it? Because I know when I was talking to Pete Reed about life in a wheelchair, he was saying, you know, there's so many things that most of us just don't think about, you know, like parking a car with one wheel over the pavement. We don't think about the person coming along in a wheelchair who needs the whole of the pavement, that kind of thing. How, how are we um, in terms of day to day life for someone with a visual impairment? There are lots of obstacles out there, especially now with um, us all getting out and about again Mm. Um, and lots of restaurants and cafes all having, what's what's it called? Street clutter is what I call it. Um, (laughs) You know, (laughs) tables and and all of that outside, because obviously a guide dog is trained to work to the left. Mm. So to follow the left. So they're trained usually, as it used to be, was to walk alongside the shops. Uh, Obviously that that then made it easier for you know, somebody with a guide dog or a cane to, you know, locate mm-hmm. a shop entrance and also easier for the dog. Yeah. I mean, now, now, you know, certainly in the last year, they've had to learn to navigate queues. I mean, they don't know queues. They, they just walk straight through the middle of a queue. Guide dogs don't know about social distancing. So it has, it's, it's still, it's, it's, it's a new world. Yeah. I still prefer to go rowing than... <laughs> <laughs> into the middle of our city centre that makes a lot of sense so let's let's move on to the the rowing were you sporty sort of up until you discovered rowing was was exercise and fitness part of your life I think probably anybody from my twitter feeds will know that that no (laughs) (laughs) no oh I used to roller skate as a teenager always used to uh, skate backwards which is probably good because it didn't matter that you couldn't see did you go to the roller disco oh god yes and when they had when they had the speed skating on there was me and this other girl and you know I was only about 14 obviously I was probably short-sighted at the time I didn't even know that but I yeah oh no just that getting out there and and going around at speed I just you know I just used to love it I used to love a roller disco (laughs) I know what's happened to them. <laughs> we should definitely bring those back. Definitely. I always used to like playing bulldog as well on skates. That's quite dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I no, I wasn't. No, I in my twenties, thirties, forties, I just spent life looking after my family, doing lots of volunteering with schools, that sort of thing. You know, the only sort of exercise I really did was walking. Mm-hmm. And when my, just before actually I started rowing, when my partner had a, a bad operation on his back, actually, you know, up until then, we would probably go rambling for, you know, six miles or more mm-hmm. at weekends and things with the dog. Uh, but no, that, that sort of like all stopped. So apart from working my dog, there wasn't even that walking. And then, then I found walking a bit boring. And so I knew in 2017, I was, I was just looking for something else. Yeah. And I suppose the story goes that um, I, I was suffering from anxiety, which, I, you know, isn't usually totally me, but it, it was quite bad that year. And I was dragging my daughter out to walk the dogs every day. I would just go out and stand in sunshine in the middle of winter. Mm. Just like I couldn't stand to be indoors. And we were walking alongside the river. And I think it was April. And there was I could hear people on the river the other side of the tree mm-hmm. 
and they were chatting and having a laugh. Um, they're all now my friends. And I, my daughter said, oh, they're in a, they're in a boat. I went, ah, oh, that's it, rowing. Mm-hmm. I said to her, that was suggested to me 20 years ago, but I couldn't, well, I didn't have the confidence, but I, I couldn't do it because obviously the children were so young. Mm-hmm. And so I went, that's it, that is it. And I contacted the club and I suppose that's how it all started. They welcomed me along for a quiet chat about, you know, how it would work, me being blind. Were you were you the first adaptive rower they'd had? Yes, as far as I know, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they can't get rid of me, so I'm a bit <laughs> like a bad penny, really. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you went down to the club for the first time and yep. they've not accommodated a blind rower before how how did they and you manage the whole thing you started off in a crew boat didn't you well firstly I I um, had to say to them that I only wanted to row from a Monday to a Friday daytime Mm -hmm. and the only sessions they offered then were ones run by the U3A or Mm -hmm. they were called they were called the U3A sessions Mm -hmm. so older people uh, retired people but that was that was quite that was good because it was it's quiet and the first session I went down and Pete said oh so you've just you've just had a little bit on the erg mm-hmm. um when you f- came down and chatted to the other guy I went yes yes I did, yes I did that he went, so what's your learning style and I was like oh gosh don't ask me and then I thought about it and I said well with a guide dog we go out with the dog and we do it, you know, so we're trained with the dog, obviously with, with some theory alongside. So he said, all right, okay, then put you out in a double and this with uh, another coach called Alan. So Alan went in bow, as I now know, and he balanced the boat. And that's what happened for the first few sessions. You know, obviously I couldn't go out with floats because I couldn't see anything. Yeah. And then I think Pete had to go, he was going on holiday, I believe, after about my fifth, sixth session. And so I got put in stroke of the, the U3A quad, ladies quad. And I was like, oh, God. And I actually, and then I spent the next year there. Brilliant. And that's until we discovered how to get me into a single. Now I'm assuming, and this may be a ridiculous cliche, I don't know, but I'm assuming that when you don't have one of the sensors, all of the others come much more into play and are much more sensitive. Does it feel scarily tippy when you're in the boat and it's kind of moving and not balancing? Are you hyper aware of the balance in a way that other people are not? No, I don't think so. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's a good Um, thing. (laughs) And and I also also think that... Yes, you're, you're right. Your, your other senses, you have to use your other senses mm. more because your sight is something like 85, 90% of your sensory input. So uh, I know my daughter always says I've got ears of a bat because, <laughs> I, you know, I'm talking to somebody and I'm listening into something else. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and also, yeah, I suppose smell. You, you concentrate on smell a lot as well. And mm. touch, oh, touch is very important. Yeah. Touch is my guide when I'm walking around, really. So but there is that. But in a boat, oh no, 
you know, if it's if, if it's if it's off balance, it's it's just you know, I'm I'm not doing something right. I'm really interested in in this because um, back in the summer when Judith was doing the Zoom ergos, uh, when we were doing those race pieces, yes, uh, I remember there was one because you were there. She did one of them. Uh, I think it was a a one k piece or something, and she said to everybody, "We were all to close our eyes to sort of experience what that that was like." And for me, it was kind of transformative in terms of the start because. I was so much more aware of what my body was doing and how far up and down the slide I was going and you know how far I'd extended and what what the the sort of angle of my body was that any opportunity I have now to do a start where it's possible for me to have my eyes closed so say if I'm stroking a a quad or something I will close my eyes on the start now just to wow that's amazing yeah it was absolutely transformative because I think I'm much more accurate in terms of sort of timing that start than I am with my eyes open I mean obviously I've never rode with sight yeah so I have no idea what that is like but I do uh even on the erg I mean my, my coach has agreed because I spent the first two years of rowing totally avoiding the machine. And it was only when he gave me that 20K challenge that I accepted. And he went, you know, that means you're going to have to go on the erg. And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay, I accepted the challenge. And now I am addicted. Yeah. But he did say that, uh, and even he said over the last month or so, how much that has benefited me being on the water because I've been able to practice different things on the erg that you don't always get to practice on water. So you can, um, I always call it mind mapping. So I have to mind, I mind map my stroke. So if I've got something to correct, sometimes it's best to get onto the erg and just mind map it. So my recent thing has been that I, you know, I've known for a long time that I stick at the finish. It's almost, it's almost like I stick at my ribs and then, uh, then I go away. So it's no there's no round the ball, as my coach says, at the ribs. So I've been working on that. And it's, I, I, you know, even thinking about it today in Judith's session, I, I really noticed that it's, it is coming into play. So I'm hoping that's going to be the same on the water. Yeah. Now, I heard a really interesting discussion. Um, I don't know if you've ever listened to the Steady State podcast. It's an American rowing podcast. I must admit I haven't. Okay, so... <laughs> Newsflash for everybody listening. It's an absolutely brilliant podcast. It's two women who've only just met for the first time in in person because they they started during lockdown. They're on sort of almost opposite sides of the States and passionate rowers. And they interviewed uh, another blind sculler and they were talking about the sounds of rowing and, you know, what sounds he most enjoys so I'm going to put the same question to you. Are there particular sounds that you really love when you're rowing? Um, yes. For me, it's making the sound of the water go under the boat. And it doesn't matter. It could be when it starts to just gurgle under the boat. Or it could be when you're driving so hard and it's rushing under the boat. And you've got those bubbles Yes, yes. I, I like that. Um, and I also, because I row on the lake mostly at Peterborough, 
uh, we have boys to donate the lanes. Um, and if I'm over the other side of the lake to my coach, uh, he likes to put me on the boy line just so he's got a bit of a more of a, an idea where I am. And if I can actually pop the boy under the bow of the boat and then hear it plop up at the stern, it's almost like a game. <laughs> how, many of the, how many of those can I do? The most I've done so far is five. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm still struggling with the rowing in a straight line business. <laughs> we all struggle with the rowing in a straight line business. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm the master of the slalom race. <laughs> Well, having been back at a regatta for the first time in two years this weekend, I can tell you forensically from seeing it happen in front of me that you are not alone. There was a lot of slalom rowing going on. So we haven't yet talked about your single sculling and and how you got into that and how that works logistically. That's really interesting. Oh, it's it's just, it just makes me smile. It really does. Um, it's the freedom to be out there by myself. For the first year of rowing, as I said, I was in a crew boat in the ladies' quad. And every time when we got off the lake, everybody, you know, they would be like, how are we going to get Kate in a single? How can we get Kate in a single? And people were looking at different engineered boats, you know. Uh, so there was somebody down on the Thames who'd had a, a remote-controlled rudder on a single. That, that, but, People are just doing different things. I know other people who have fixed cox boxes in the boat. Obviously, I row in a club boat. I don't have my own. So that's not really a possibility. And eventually I came up with the fact, well, what's wrong with two mobile phones and two headsets? And I'd recently discovered bone conduction headsets, which mean that I can still hear everybody around me. So uh, I can still hear all the nature, all the sounds you know, people chuntering along. And Pete has a similar headset. So he's your your coach and your guide. My coach and my navigator, yes. Yes, it's, it's quite nice. I get all this one-to-one fabulous coaching, plus I get to be out in the water by myself. Perfect. I mean, I mean who else gets that most of the time? <laughs> so he goes on a bike, does he, along the, the edge of the lake? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, he does. He he gets on his bicycle and goes up and down. I sometimes let him rest at each end while I do some technical drills because I <laughs> I am a bit I am a bit of a skills lover. You know, I I love nothing else more than practicing balancing or you know roll ups, arms away. What's your favorite drill? To be honest, just trying to get my balance going. So it would be arms away, square blade out, feather and see how long I can try and sit there for. I could sit in a stable boat for like hours, but in a, in a fine single, it's, I've realised at 54 that um, maybe balance isn't quite <laughs> as good as it was at 18. <laughs> Nothing technical. I sort of get to choose, although my new challenge is that I want to be able to square blade for at least half a kilometre. Wow, that's a long way. I think if I can manage one or two strokes, I'm doing well. <laughs> I've probably got past the one or two, but then, you know, it's not easy. And then this has come about because I've seen um, our captains uh, go out in a, a double together 
and they just square blade. And I'm just like, that is just, I can't believe it. It must take a lot of practice. I did a, a sculling course at Tyne United a few years ago, which I highly recommend. It's a master's single sculling course. And there was someone in my group and for some reason, I, I can't remember why it was, maybe she had something going on with her wrists or something, but she square bladed for the entire session. Oh and that to me was just, you know, beyond belief. I, I was in awe. So big, big shout out to Sean. She is absolutely incredible. It takes so much concentration. And it also means you have to have your blades off and out at the finish and away and keep them there. One of the reasons for doing this is because I tend to drop at the catch. I've seen a video of your single sculling and it, I have to say it's superb. Uh, it depends on which one you saw. <laughs> if it's the one when I was in a stable single done, you know, done by Stuart, that, that's an, I love that piece of footage. Don't spoil the moment, Kate, just take it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You know, I, it takes a lot, you know, because people have seen that and still assume I, I row in a stable. But I don't. I do row a fine single without floats. And I'm not saying that that's any detriment to anybody else. But, you know, I was never given the opportunity to have floats. <laughs> and you did an amazing challenge, didn't you? Was it last year you did a, a fundraiser? Oh, my 20K on yeah. the river in a fine single. Yes. Tell me about that, actually, because I, I stumbled upon your fundraising page and it just blew me away. Well, that's because back in 2019, and I'd been out in a single for a year, I'd only converted to a fine single sort of three months before that because I stayed in the stable as long as I could so to, to perfect technique because I, I like perfecting technique. Um, but then I went into the fine and then it was just like came to the july i said pete what's the next challenge what what are we going to do and he came up with five things and the 20k for 2020 was there i went well it's there what else am i going to do why not Uh, just not realizing actually how much hard work it would be to train considering i as i say i'd never been on the rowing machine really seriously so it took the, the training to do that. And then I got my own rowing machine at the beginning of the July. And I think it was the first time we'd been actually out on the river, or it might have been the second since lockdown. And we got to the 7K mark. And I thought, oh, lovely day. He went, shall we carry on? I went, oh, God, yeah, because I gave up in March and didn't do it because I thought my hands were going to give up. And we we continued. Got to the 10k, turned around, got back to 13k, and oh boy, did the wind pick up and the weather get a bit squally and nasty. And all I had through my headset was Pete going, "Just don't stop." Wow! And that that is all he kept saying, "Don't stop," because if, as soon as I stopped, I was going to be heading back to where I'd come. <laughs> wow! So it was really, really bad conditions. When I got back to the club, there were only a few people obviously there because obviously it wasn't planned, but I wanted to do it. And in some ways, it was actually my challenge for me wasn't the challenge for everybody else. 
although it's nice to have people there to actually say well done when you get back that they did and it wasn't till after that and there were a few of the guys that usually rode that piece and that they said well done they said because that that wasn't nice weather out there when you turned around at the bridge and then in the following weeks after that I suddenly realized that this thing that I thought was the norm at club where people rode this 20k to the lock and back wasn't something everybody did (laughs) (laughs) it's only a few people that do it just the nutters well the hardened people who you know who've been rowing probably for years or yeah so I've realized that you were raising money for Peterborough for the rowing club I was that's fantastic. And how were your hands at the end of it? Because I imagine that the conditions probably made it, you know, even harder on your hands than it would normally have been. I'm going to sit here smiling and say they were fine. Wow. I was rather tired, but because it wasn't a time trial, it, it did take me three hours or so. But no, my hands were fine. And I think that comes a lot from the training from Pete about, you know, blade work and not gripping your blades. So you're obviously someone who likes a challenge. Do you have a new one on the horizon? Apart from the square blading, no. I did ask people and they suggested racing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've sort of had a bit of a conversation. I've had a conversation with you and I've had a conversation with Judith about this. And it's I just don't feel it's me at the moment. Mm-hmm. Apart from the fact that I just don't think I'm quick enough. I mean, that's never stopped me competing. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't mean to say that I don't race informally. Yeah. So if there's somebody out on the lake at the same time as me and I know they're training for something my friend Eric he's training for Cambridge in a couple of weeks he also did Peterborough regatta and I was quite happy to do racing starts with him and put him through his paces for the kilometer because that also puts me through my paces the only thing is somebody did say another friend said yeah but if you could only run a straight line Kate you'd have beat him (laughs) (laughs) I can very much relate to that (laughs) But it's funny with racing because I sort of have a real love-hate relationship with it. And I can see that those kind of informal races have so much going for them. Because like this weekend when we were racing, I spent probably half the day feeling sick with nerves, partly because it had been such a long time since I'd last raced. But I really did feel very, very anxious, very nervous. And then the rest of the day sort of weirdly elated, even though, you know, we only won a a heat. We lost the final in in both races, but nevertheless elated that it was all right and there'd been no disasters. And it's just it for me, it's such a roller coaster. So I can see why it's so intense. It's not necessarily for everybody at all. I don't really know why I do it, actually. (laughs) Yeah, because I I think I, I, I now may sound strange try to avoid situations that probably make me that anxious yeah that I'm going oh god why am I doing this even though I know that the end result might be that I'm like you say feeling elated but I can get that feeling just from getting on the water so you know that's 
probably how I deal with that one. And also there, there are logistics around being blind and racing in a single. So, you know, would Pete have to go in a launch? Could he go on a bicycle? All of that. And even just thinking about all of that started to make me feel anxious. So it wasn't just like pitching up with your boat. It was, oh, there's, there's everything else about it. And people say, well, go in a double, go in the quad. But no, I don't want to do that. Actually, even the thought of going in a boat with somebody else makes me anxious. I am going to go out with my daughter in a, a couple of weeks when Pete's away. We haven't rode in a double for, oh, at least two and a bit years, so or even three. But we do row well together. Oh, that's lovely. I always say it's divorce in a boat. You know, it's family divorce in a boat. Well, yeah, I'm amazed yeah. when when I see people, you know, couples rowing and particularly racing together. And as for um, Helena Smallman-Smith, who, who crossed the Atlantic with her husband, oh. <laughs> I would throw myself overboard <laughs> before he had to. <laughs> yeah, I, I like my own space as well. And that's part of being out on the water as well. As Pete says, well, it's your time. You get to decide. In fact, he's kind of a bit quiet on me recently. <laughs> I, think it, I think it means either I'm doing some good rowing or I'm going in a straight line. So he isn't having to tell me all the fineries because we have our own rowing language, I suppose. A bit like when I'm out working my guide dog, you know, we have certain phrases, words. But also they develop over time and like actions with hands and what I say to her. And that's the same with Pete and I. I can't, I don't swap guide dogs every day or every week or every time I want to. You know, you have a specific guide dog and it takes up to six months or more to get used to having your guide dog, your new guide dog. So it's taken Pete and I a year or so from starting to actually get to where we are. It's a very sort of like close sort of language, lots of trust and respect as well on both sides. A, he has to know how fast I'm going to go and when I'm going to do it. And he also has to know that I'm going to do what he says. You know, if he, if he says hard on the right, just right, or, you know, concentrate on the right, then he has to know that I'm going to do that. And I, if after five strokes, concentrate on the right is a bit like, that's not working. Hard right. <laughs> you know, it's not sometimes that I've not tried. It's just that um, he has to know what's going on so that I'm, I'm not going to go into the bank or hit another boat. Has he had to learn on the job as well? Had he worked with any anyone blind before? No. Okay, so it's been a big learning curve for both of you. Yes, and, and for him it's been, he wasn't even the adaptive coach at our club. We, there is another guy, Ian who is basically usually the adaptive coach. But because I wanted to row as a say during the daytime, he wasn't available because he was working. So it was up to Pete to take it over. And then obviously when I went out in the single, I think he found it a bit of a challenge. I think it's I think it's I think it's nice for coaches to also get something different. Yeah. And I suppose I am that bit different. That kind of brings me on to something else I wanted to talk to you about, which is sort of the the misconceptions around adaptive rowing. Because I know for a lot of clubs that haven't ever done any, it's this kind of big, scary thing. And they imagine that it must involve a huge amount of expensive equipment and specialist knowledge and everything. Do you think, do you think we 
overplay what's involved in it? That could be the case. Obviously, there are clubs that have separate adaptive squads. That's not how we work at Peterborough. In fact, I'm very glad, and I've had this conversation with Pete because he's chair of the rowing committee, that it's good that we don't. So if say if you come to Peterborough, you're not separated out from others. You might be allocated a coach to help you do whatever you're doing so that you can just be included, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, last year, a deaf lady came along, our age again. But I turned up yesterday. Pete wasn't around. So I wasn't going out, but she was out and she was out. She's now confident and out by herself because it's quieter during the week. Um, As long as she looks behind her, she she can go out. I don't think it has to be expensive, although I suppose for people in wheelchairs, there is the, you know, the cost, whether clubs have a hoist or how they get in and off the water, that sort of thing. Uh, Peterborough were lucky enough to get a grant for a new disabled shower room. So I suppose it is about what each club has. And most clubs aren't rich, are they? So it's about how to get that funding. It's interesting because we, my club was in, in conversation with Stratford, which has a big adaptive squad. And they said, well, just start off by not making any assumptions about what you need to offer and just wait and see what comes along because you don't know what disabilities people will come with. Uh, so if you, you know, build an expensive ramp, that might not be what's needed. Uh, and I think that was quite an important message to get out there that you, you, it doesn't, you know, adaptive rowing isn't always people in wheelchairs. Uh, you don't know what people are going to come with and what their what their needs are going to be. So I think, I think at Peter, we only have about four or five adaptive rowers. I think it is a field where it's very difficult to get people to come along. I mean, I try my best to promote, especially blind rowing, because it's very accessible, but it's very difficult to get the message out there. Uh, I think I think that's one of the reasons why when I first started going out in a single, you know, the club trustees were, you know, very happy for me to try get the promoted word out there about, I say blind rowing, but obviously, yeah, adaptive rowing. I actually don't even think of myself as an adaptive rower. I just think of myself as a rower, a person who gets in a boat. Yeah. Um, I asked Pete recently. He said, oh, no, I, I don't think about you being blind. In fact, I, I forget about that. He said, I just think you're somebody who constantly needs looking after. <laughs> and, and he sometimes forgets about that as well. <laughs> Obviously, this is a sort of prime time to be talking about this because, you know, we've just come to the end of the Paralympic rowing, which was amazing. And it's something that's probably more on the more on the radar of the general public. Normally, people don't put the two things together. So I wonder what we can do better as a sport to make ourselves more attractive to people with all sorts of disabilities who might love rowing. I think people don't think about rowing. People think about things like walking or cycling or swimming as, you know, a sport for somebody with a disability. I don't know whether it's because I don't like it, but, you know, the general public maybe still think rowing is elite, which it definitely isn't. Or certainly not, you know, at grassroots club level, such as Peterborough. I don't know if it is elsewhere. 
I've not really been elsewhere yet. But I, I think it's very difficult. It's very difficult to get the message out there, I think, to bring people in to, um, as I say, adaptive rowing. I wonder if there's scope through indoor rowing to to get people into the sport, because that probably does feel a bit more accessible. You don't have to go to a big fancy clubhouse and, you know, perhaps that's perhaps that's the, the way forward is via indoor rowing. Also with rowing, people might think of it as being expensive. Yeah. Which, again, it's, it probably costs less than joining the gym. Definitely. Probably there is a misconception that you have to have your own boat, mm. whereas you can easily row a club boat. There's all sorts of things out there that people just don't, that people think that aren't true. Yeah. And unless they actually approach a rowing club, and, and again, there's that. Certainly for some blind people, we've had, I've encouraged a, at least a couple of blind people to come along and try rowing, but they live about 20 miles away. Now, for a blind person, that's not always easy to navigate. That's a good point. You know, it could ta- it could take all day. If you're thinking, oh, you've got to get to your local train station, then you've got to get from the train station to the club. That's another taxi. And then all of that added on. You're probably taking a whole day out just to go for a two-hour row. But tell me what rowing, what it gives you, because, you know, you're someone who comes alive when you talk about it. Your enthusiasm just sort of radiates from you. So so sell rowing to the world. What does it do for you? (laughs) It makes me smile. People can't see the biggest grin on my face. I only have to go into some of the local pubs where people know me and they go, how's the rowing? And they just say, I light up. I light up. And, and and I try not to get evangelical about it and bore them to death because probably all they want me to say is, oh, it's great. <laughs> and, I, and I can't help but say more. And I know since I've discovered that horrible machine, you know, that erg that I now love, it's great for fitness. Why didn't anybody tell me years ago it is the easiest way to lose weight? Without working hard and without changing your diet, because there's no way I'm going to change my diet. (laughs) In fact, I've rediscovered chocolate and cake. So I think, you know, that's rowing. It makes you smile. You're out in the fresh air. You make new friends. It's fun. It's a challenge. There's always something new. Is there a sense of being kind of untethered because when you're out in your single skull it's just you powering yourself with no aids of any sort yeah if if it's a bad outing it's my bad outing it's not because I'm thinking oh gosh that quad was so unbalanced or something like that it's me it's just me and I that is I suppose that is something I don't often get now that my sight's really not so great. You know, the only other opportunity is that I get out and work my dog, but that's still not the same because guide dogs need an A to B. So I, I still have to think about that. It's not just a trip around the corner. Whereas out in the water, it's just, oh, it's just so freeing. I mean, I'm sure that's the same for sighted scholars as well. 
you know, just to be out there and listening to things and maybe bopping a swan or (laughs) uh, currently avoiding the cygnets. Yeah, it is that sense of freedom and me time and just the way your brain goes into relaxation mode. I've read that's just because of all the lovely endorphins we get from being outside and exercising. And that doesn't matter whether you're paddling along, although I'm not sure what a paddle along is anymore <laughs> since, um, since I've been in the fine, or powering it and motoring it. I love it. I love it when I, I've missed, I have a magnetic pull towards the 500 metre boy on our lake. And once, <laughs> once I've missed it, and Pete just says, it's clear then that's, that's my cue. That's my cue for me to be able to just go and power as much as I want until he says easy. And that is, that's, I don't know how fast my boat goes. I have no idea. I mean, I can only go on, you know, the sound of the water and things like that. And it is just gorgeous. So I recommend it to anybody. <laughs> Blind, you know, any other physical disability, sensory disability, or just anybody. It's get out on the water. I love it. I love it. I couldn't agree more. No, that's it. It's the same, isn't it? Whether Whether you're sighted or not, or have a disability or not, it's the same. Mm. I know not everybody takes to rowing. I had a, 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 a friend who was um, a tandem parachute instructor for many, many years. He came along to rowing to try it out about three years ago. He had one session and that was it. He just did no. He said, no, I'm just too scared. And I'm like, what do you mean you're scared? You, you jumped out of planes <laughs> for years with people attached to you. And you're scared of being, I don't know, in a little boat on the water. And actually, I think he was probably in an explorer boat or a play boat. So it doesn't always suit everybody. But I think, as people say, you've just got to find the sport or activity that makes you smile. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. um, Pulls you back. Yeah, I can't I can't imagine not getting on the water. No, that was the that was the pain during lockdown, wasn't it? When we actually couldn't. Oh. Yes. And then if you don't have your own rowing machine as well. I think as the lockdowns went on, it got easier. But then I had a rowing machine. And we had Zoom ergos as well, which gave us a community, which I think made actually looking back a huge difference. How amazing. It's pulled together so many people. And I'm glad they're back. And starting today with Judith. Now you're putting me to shame again. Just full disclosure, I missed, I slept in and missed this morning's Zoom Ergo session. <laughs> and Kate was there. <laughs> I'd never have believed that in the middle of winter, I would be out in my little freezing cold, sort of what I call the utility where the row machine is, at quarter past seven, <laughs> warming up, ready for a 7.30. Yeah. And I was just like, what? So my, my, my I think what I'm going to try and plan to do is approach other rowing clubs to see if I can come and row on their stretch of water oh the only problem is that 
um, apart from, well, I know Pete would uh, get me a boat to somewhere, uh, but it would be whether clubs are willing to lend me a single. And because he also doesn't have an RYA license, which other clubs generally require for somebody in a launch, I'd then be looking at clubs to see if there's a lovely, willing volunteer to drive the launch. Because I understand that that's probably what most clubs do. Do you know what, Kate? I think you're going to be coming down with offers. Genuinely. <laughs> you're my opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> right. Throwing it out there. Yeah. Hands up. I want to get, want to get out and travel. Excellent. Um, you know, you don't have to worry about the coach navigator bit. I'll bring him along. Fantastic. <laughs> fantastic so you've got to have you've got to have a stretch you've either got to have a launch or a stretch a cyclable stretch where you can actually see the river yes it's, yeah you've definitely got to be able to see the river and that can be from a launch you can do it from a launch yeah yeah, yeah. okay yeah when I did my when I did my 20k challenge Pete's always gone out in the launch because okay. on our, our river you can't always see the river yeah so uh, if I'm on the river he will go out in the launch which I think is a sort of a way of getting to go out and play in a, 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 a you know a motorboat yeah so send them in how 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 do people contact you uh twitter twitter and you are I think I'm just Kate Lindgren on twitter okay I'll put that in the show notes as well in case anyone wants to to get in touch I think that's brilliant fantastic yeah, well, I've, you know, got to have a new challenge. Yeah. Now, one last question. Um, you came at the suggestion of Judith Packer. So uh, paying it forward, who would you like me to invite on the podcast? Oh, um, oh, you've thrown that in at me, haven't you? I'd like to hear from, because obviously I don't know how many you've done in the past me being so new to the twitter and all this podcasty thing so i know you've done judith and i'd just like to see some a a, somebody who's more of a volunteer at a club as well as a rower yes just somebody who's involved in running their club and all of those sorts of things people's different perspectives because all of our clubs are different yeah well look kate thank you so much it's been amazing talking to you the the time has just flown I feel like I've known you for so long it really is like just talking to an old friend on the phone well that is lovely that is that's what it's all about and I've enjoyed every minute of it so thank you so so much oh no ditto thank you so much in return as well I absolutely loved chatting to Kate and I hope this has got you inspired and motivated. I've put a link to Kate's Twitter account in the show notes. Her Twitter handle is actually at Catherine with a Y. That's K-A-T-H-R-Y-N 2503. So you might need a link for that. My next episode will be coming out on the 6th of October in Breast Cancer Awareness Month. My guest is a wonderful rower who lives in Texas and has just picked up some medals at the US Rowing Masters Championships despite having had breast cancer twice. He, and yes, that is kind of the point, is really keen for you to know about male breast cancer. 
We also talk about learning to row with sharks in the water, about diversity in rowing and much more. So listen out for it in early October. In the meantime, do stay in touch. And until then, next stroke, easy or.